quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. Welcome to Making Bow Hunting Better. This is your host, James Orr. And joining us as always, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's going on, Bob? Uh, well, today's a good day. I got a Nevada elk tag in my pocket. <laughs> so, yeah, that's big big news for today. But uh, other than that, yeah, this is a how, new, new little thing we're doing. How long did it take you to get that Nevada elk tag? This is my 17th year applying. So, funny story real quick. I know these are supposed to be short segments, but I started applying when I was, when I, I went to college for a year and then I started my plumbing apprenticeship. So I was 19, almost 20. And that was the first year Nevada had a non-resident archery elk tag. The first time you could apply for it. an elk tag is a non-resident for archery. And um, back then you had to front all the money and it's it, even then, I think, I think it's always been a $1,200 tag. It is not cheap. might've been a thousand back then. I should talk a little quieter so my wife doesn't hear, but anyway, um, that's when I got my first credit card <laughs> was so I could apply for that tag 17 so years ago. <laughs> they hold on to the thousand bucks for a couple they, weeks. I think they did back then. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I went and actually, yeah, that's when I got my first credit card. So I applied for that tag. So, yeah, I finally drew it. And uh, wow, so that Arizona elk tag, so, man, it's going to be. It's on and popping. Yeah, it's going to be a good year for sure. At least I'll get a lot of a lot of hunt, and that's for sure. So Yeah, that's, that's going down. Right on. Well, uh, yeah, so as you guys know, usually we have on uh, some awesome guy we – found out in the mountains or a big name and we get to know him and hunting stories and i mean that stuff is awesome and that's what trad quest is all about but we really wanted to do something a little different um we want to do something that we can use this platform and we can spread a message and we can maybe you know give back or educate so we're doing this Making bow hunting better. Uh, this is segment one of it. And it's something me and Bob are pretty passionate about. We've been talking about doing this for, oh, about the last 25, 30 episodes. And we're going to try to sneak these in to you guys, uh, whenever we feel the need, you know, once a month at least. And we're hoping to, uh, focus on all the states. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, Something going on in, uh, the East Coast or the Midwest or, uh, out West. So, you know, go ahead and keep us posted, uh, you listeners on topics that could make bow hunting better in your area. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, we, we, t- we've talked about, we've been going to do this for a long time. So our first, um, guest on here, I guess you could say, and he's going to kind of help us with this, is uh, Jim Akinson. He was on episode 19, was it, James? It was way back he's, there. He's the wild biologist man who lived 7,000 days in the River No Return Wilderness, but he's also super involved in our 
local organizations. He's been super involved in national organizations, PBS, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, he's the conservation director for the Oregon Hunters Association. He's involved in traditional arches of Oregon. He does a lot for uh, the outdoors and for us hunters. So, and um, he's just and he's just the salt of the earth. I mean, man, Jim Akinson, that guy is quality. Yeah. So we just brought him on here today just to kind of give a rundown of how we can, how it all works, how how the commission meetings set things, and how you you can voice your opinion and and how those things matter and he kind of gave us some examples of how it's worked for our you know traditional archery seasons that we have here in Oregon and kind of how that goes so they're short it's, they're gonna, we're going to try to keep these short but uh, it's definitely important information and hopefully we can make a difference you know our our uh, a lot of these legends that we have on here they made a difference back in the you know, 50s and 60s, we talked to a guy this morning who was 90-some years old, and and he, they didn't did. have they didn't have archery seasons. You know, like so so those guys did some amazing things to so we can all enjoy what we love today. And uh, and James and I are super passionate about that. We think I mean we live in a great time. It is the good old days. We realize that, but uh, you know, things that we can do. There hasn't been a lot of things done in the last 25, 30 years, you know, that, that have helped bow hunting opportunity and tags are getting harder to draw. There's more guys applying for the same tags. I mean, I just drew a tag today that granted it was an event elk tag, but it's just getting tougher out there. So we're going to kind of look at the whole picture and, and uh, what and we can do as hunters to maybe create some more opportunity, whether it's a compound season or a traditional season. Or whatever, you know, we we're yeah, gonna talk, it, try it, to it, talk it, the, all the touchy subjects that most guys don't want to talk about. We're going to talk about them. So um, hopefully it'll help. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not just make traditional bow hunting better. When we say make bow hunting better, we mean make bow hunting better. And, you know, we will uh, touch on some traditional only stuff and we are passionate about that. But on a whole, we want to see bow hunting go in the right direction we want to see opportunities for bow hunters. Um, and we want to see, you know, opportunities where guys can get some great tags and not have to wait 17 years to get it. So basically, you know, look at, uh, this segment as, uh, us trying to at least turn over some leaves and learn ourselves. I mean, we're not perfect. We're busy. We have kids, jobs, just like the rest of you guys. But we want to try to figure out how we can get involved and spread that word uh, down the chain. Exactly. So, yeah, we appreciate your feedback. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you guys think as these things start coming. I mean, even if you think we're idiots, go right ahead. Send them. Like, we want to know what you guys are thinking, too. And uh, we've had a lot of good feedback. We get we get some negative feedback here and there. We realize that, you know, there's – Everybody's got their opinion, and we we understand that we're not going to make everybody happy, but uh, we appreciate all the feedback. So, let us know what you guys think. And uh, episode one of uh, making bow hunting better. Hopefully, we can do it. Jim Akinson. Yeah, absolutely. And I just will add to that that me and Bob put a ton of work into Trad Quest, and at the end of the day, 
we decided that if we could make some kind of a difference in bow hunting, it'll all be worth it. And this is our stab at it. So enjoy. Tonight we've got Jim Akinson, one of our uh, locals, one of the good guys. How are you doing tonight, Jim? Doing good. Uh, glad you can join us. Um, so yeah, why don't you get us uh, started, Bob, and kind of explain what we're uh, got going on. All right. Well, we brought Jim on tonight. We're going to, you know, getting a little older. I heard Steve Ranella talk about it a few years ago at the BHA rendezvous. Talk about giving back. You know, when we're younger, we hunt and hunt and we kind of take. And So we're going to kind of do this little segment, start getting some guys on that can help us that haven't been giving back and uh, just help us get involved with our our local organizations and our state organizations and what we can do um, to help out. So we brought Jim on. Jim's been the president of BHA, super involved with TAO. He's super involved in our Oregon Hunters Association. He goes to all the commission meetings. He's very involved. So we're just going to let him kind of uh, guide us along here and uh, tell us what we can do to help out. So let's just sure. start at our state level, Jim. Like, maybe we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, most most of my state involvement is through my employment as a conservation director of Oregon Hunters Association. And basically the meetings that I'm most oriented towards attending, being involved with, giving testimony, are the Fish and Wildlife Commission meetings which happen on a monthly basis, typically. There's there's a couple months that get skipped in the summer, but by and large, they're monthly. And on the ODFW website, um, there's an announcement um, chart that shows when the next meetings are going to be and if there is uh, information packet or an agenda available. So you can typically find out two months roughly in advance uh, what the topics of the commission meeting are going to be. And it's good to always uh, keep checking that and seeing if there's anything of interest. Of course, for me, we're in Oregon hunters, uh, basically anything that pertains to hunting and or uh, specific species management issues such as with wolves and cougars. And I provided input at every opportunity on those species management plans. Um, when archery topics come up, uh, we had the lighted knock come up a few years ago, expanded broadheads have been up for discussion, um, those sorts of things. It's really critical to uh, be aware of what's coming because a lot of times that first informational meeting is when you really have the opportunity to present your case on why you think something should or shouldn't occur in Oregon's uh, regulations. And then the commission, usually in a following meeting, uh, will vote on that. And a lot of times it's in conjunction with the adopting of the big game rules um, for that particular year. And we are upcoming to a very major point in time uh, this September, with, with that rulemaking meeting, it's going to deal with um, regulation simplification. And there are several things that are packaged within that. In fact, there's 28 
items that are identified on the spreadsheet. Um, the archery-related ones, um, one significant one, is reducing allowable bow weight for hunting elk to 40 pounds from 50. Uh, that's a significant one and a concern. And another one is allowing um, GoPro or video-type cameras to be mounted on the bow, and the passive had to be on a bow hunter's arm or on a hat or a headband, uh, etc. But that's just an example. And um, typically at these meetings, you sign up first thing in the morning. Uh, there'll be several sheets laid out on a table, and they will correspond with topics that are identified by the director of the department and, and staff that are important and need to be addressed. So then you get basically a three-minute slot to present your case in that topic area, and which really amounts to two hours and or two hours, two minutes and, and forty seconds by the time you um, state your name and where you're from and and give those specifics, what your association is, if you're representing yourself or you're representing an organization. And uh, sometimes there will be a broader opportunity, um, a panel-type format, in which case you might get as much as 10 minutes. But that's usually when you're representing a larger group, such as in the case of the Wolf Plan, <clears throat> where I was representing Oregon Hunters, uh, the, the whole organization, and I had 10 minutes, as did Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Oregon Cattlemen's Association, and the Oregon Farm Bureau. Now, those were the folks that were on the management, pro-management side of the panel. And then there was Defenders of Wildlife, Center for Biological Diversity, Humane Society, and Oregon Wild, which were representing the other panel. But And that's an example of group representation, and usually in those cases you, you get broader amounts of time, there still will be opportunity for individuals to um, stake their piece as well. So that's kind of the, the quick and uh, dirty on it. Um, yeah, that's good. So, it, so on those, those first meetings that you said are important to get there, like how many, how many sportsmen show up? You know, how many guys are there? When these issues come up, I'm just curious. I've never been to one. I'm a, I'm a slacker myself. I know most people are. Um, and just to let them know kind of what the difference would be if we all did show up, how much of a difference would be like how many, how many guys are there when, when these meetings come up? Well, you know, it, it really depends upon the topic. Something like wolves attracts a lot of people. Um, and a lot of it depends upon the location because Approximately half of those, say, five or six commission meetings a year are held in Salem. And the other, say, five, roughly, move around to the different parts of the state. And if it's a hot topic like uh, like wolves have been, uh, there could be 200 people uh, that are there to give testimony. And I would say, proportionally, it would be 35 to 40 sportsmen and the balance, maybe 150 or so, uh, would be advocates for the species, or in the case of wolves, wolf protectionists. So it's 
skewed against us. Uh, we usually do the best when we have panel type opportunities. Uh, I think the commission recognizes that and makes a more equitable voice and they don't have to listen to uh, everybody just basically saying the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and it's good to coordinate with other other people of like interest so you don't just duplicate the same message. And usually um, the thing that people have a hard time with, two, two minutes and 50 seconds flies by, and the great tendency is to have a page and a half of information, and sometimes people feel they need to read that. And it's just better to take bullet points out of your testimony. Say you're submitting something in writing, too, which is always good to do. That can be a full letter. But what you actually deliver should be the main sentence out of three or four uh, paragraphs. So you very, you're very focused on what that message is, and you're not rambling on or just reading real fast to try and get a page and a half letter done in that short amount of time. Yeah, you're getting the important parts across. Yeah. Yep. And, I, you know, we, we got an opportunity. In fact, here the last few days I've been working on a letter for um, for TAO and Professional Bowhunter Society um, from their perspective on increasing the time period of the Canyon Creek archery hunt for deer and elk. Right now it's just the first eight days of the season that are traditional in that 35-and-a-half-square-mile area at Canyon Creek. And many of us would really like to see that expanded to be the full season. So I have just, in fact, I uh, emailed you two guys, uh, James and Bob, um, a draft of that letter to take a look at it. And then if you guys think it looks good and um, we do a little bit of tweaking to it, we'll pass it on to the heads of those two respective organizations. And then from there, it will need to be submitted to the commission here, certainly by mid-July, uh, recognizing that um, it would need to be presented at the August commission meeting, and then a decision would be made in September. There's the potential for that, at least. Um, that's so that would hope this scenario. So could you tell us, uh, the listeners, a little bit about um, what that is you're referring to when we're talking about the Canyon Creek area? Okay, so it would be, from a nuts and bolts standpoint, traditional equipment only uh, for the whole season, which is, what, 28 days, I think, most years. Um, And right now, after eight days into the season, it switches to any legal archery equipment from traditional. But it starts out the first eight days at Canyon Creek, are currently traditional only, which is nice. It hallmarks the rich heritage of that place. It's the second oldest archery season in the United States and probably the oldest that's been a continuously recognized uh, archery hunt area. And certainly the only one that involves both deer and elk. Yeah, and for our listeners, that that started in 35 or 36 1936 was the first official season. Yeah, 1936. 82 years it's been an archery archery hunt area. 
And there's been some very notable people that have hunted there. Um, I've heard, and I don't know this to be fully documented, but I've heard both Fred Bear and Howard Hill have hunted there. Um, and I think Fred Bear for sure, uh, through his association with, I believe, one of the Martins, uh, Gail Martin perhaps, or gosh, it, it could be somebody even pre-Martin. But uh, it's, there's been a number of notables that have gone there in the early days. And obviously, when they first started hunting there, they were using equipment that probably 80, 90% of the people made themselves. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, just for our listeners, because, you know, we have listeners from all over. And, I mean, I talk to people frequently that can't believe that we have a traditional traditional only season in Oregon. We actually have two of them. Maybe you could explain our other traditional only season and how that kind of came about for us. Yeah. Well, the other major one is the Trout Cricks. Uh, similar sized area, I believe a little bit larger down in the southeast part of the state, kind of high desert, aspen sage, uh, broken terrain. Uh, it's primarily a mule deer area. And it's been a traditional only area, I believe, for 15 years or so at this time. And um, a number of traditional bow hunting forefathers in our state, Dave Doran for one, um, and a number of others, um, pushed for that opportunity. And some of that was just based on the fact that um, they really needed to reduce deer hunting success in that area to foster uh, more bucks reaching maturity. And uh, obviously, as traditional bow hunters, we don't run the same success rate with probably half of uh, what the conventional archer is with less than half the range. And this is a point that I brought up again in that letter regarding Canyon Creek is, hey, it's good for the resource because we just flat out don't have the same efficiency. Um, we love to be out in the field. We're highly ethical hunters. We're good at finding game after we hit them, but uh, we just don't have the same harvest. Numbers. So I think the biological effect is something that is a positive factor for us as we look to increase these traditional hunt areas. And it's all about heritage, too. And uh, it's amazing how many people will put down the wheels and pick up a traditional bow if they can have a unique and new opportunity. And um, I'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been more participation in both those areas than there has. And I think some of it is a lot of people just don't know about it. Um, and maybe we need to advertise it more. <laughs> I, I think I'm hearing more and more even younger guys heading over to the Trout Creeks, putting their compounds down. Um, I know me personally, I was on the fence and the opportunity to go to the traditional only mule deer hunt in uh, southwest or southeast Oregon there, the Trout Creeks, definitely made me put in the time, really get efficient with the traditional tackle, and I sold my compound. So I think having those opportunities can really promote our sport. If I don't, I don't like the word sport, but promote traditional bow hunting. Uh, amongst uh, all hunters well, having these opportunities. I have I have three guys I work with right now that are picking up recurves. I mean, part of it's because they listen to my podcast and I guilt them to make them listen to it. But 
they're like, hey, I can go hunt the trout creeks. That takes how many years to draw as a rifle hunter, and I can just go hunt it. They're like, heck yeah, sign me up. So I know I, I know several guys that have that have jumped on. So, but it's it's interesting that part of the reason that that was that that came about was because of the low deer numbers, and that's kind of how they used it. You know, as a yeah. tool, and, yeah. I, and I think there's a lot of places that could be used as a tool like that. Oh, yeah, there's no question. And it'll be that same way with expanding Canyon Creek. And when I first hunted Canyon Creek, I believe it was either 72 or 73. And at that time, ever since 36, that particular block of country had not been rifle on it. Wow. So it had just been bow on it. And, you know, bow technology, even though compounds are coming onto the scene, they just weren't that efficient. So you can imagine what the bucks were like in those early years. I mean, I missed some real whoppers. <laughs> saw some incredible bucks. And I shot my first mule deer buck there, and I think it was 75 or 6. Uh, it was a bigger forehead horn, but it was it was a pretty small animal compared to most of the ones we were seeing. And it, it was just it was an incredible place for a young bow hunter to cut his teeth. And, and so the place is special for me. It's just a special area for a lot of Oregonians who um, have spent some time in the bow hunting world. And uh, I know one time I was there and um, I was getting ready at Fawn Springs to leave the rig and go hunting. And I heard all this commotion. A big bunch of people were walking up the road and I can hear this distinctive voice. And that voice was Chuck Lynn, an earlier <laughs> version of the same gentleman we know so well. <laughs> he, was was probably ta- he was probably talking away, wasn't he? <laughs> Oh, he was talking away, and he was talking to a gentleman by the name of Duke Savora, who at that time was oh, making yeah. the Savora broadhead, and uh, which was one of the first replaceable insert heads. And he was telling Duke all about it, and there was a whole menagerie of people in this group, and a mix of compounds and recurves, and uh, it was just quite a scene. And I was thinking to myself, there's no way in the world... Those guys are going to have any kind of an opportunity, especially if they stay in one big group. But, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, um, here uh, Chuck's taken a well-known bow hunter to the most prominent place in our state. So it's, it's had a long heritage of that. Heck yeah. <clears throat> awesome. Well, that's good stuff, Jim. So uh, we appreciate everything you do for for the wildlife out there, for us hunters, for all the hunters in Oregon, rifle hunters, everything. Yeah, you bet. And one other arena that I think is important to um, point out, and that's the legislative process in Salem, when there's sometimes fish and wildlife issues come before the legislature, uh, separate from the commission and or both. And that's been the case with the wolf topic and wolf hunting, wolf management. And that's another opportunity. It's a little trickier deal. It's not quite set up as um, easily for the standard sportsman to go give testimony, but it's it's certainly worth tracking. We've got a lobbyist in Oregon Hunters Association that tracks that stuff all the time. His name's Al Elkins, and he's at every legislative session. And whenever there's something that comes up hunting-related, he notifies the rest of our staff so we can 
provide input that either he gives or somebody gives, and um, so we know what's brewing. Perfect. And uh, and and I think that um, TAO for the size of the organization, it's a it's a it's a mighty mouse organization. You know, we don't have a big membership, but we have a lot of potency, and um, I think we have have a tradition of having uh, the ear of the director and the commissioners were recognized and being recognized as a group is really important. So basically what Jim's saying is it doesn't matter what state you're in, you guys need to get involved with whatever local organizations that are supporting traditional archery and traditional bow hunting and that are supporting uh, outdoorsmen and hunters alike. That's right, James, 100%. And even if you're not an Oregonian, you can still be a member of the TAO. So if you want to help that mighty mouse he's talking about, uh, just go to traditionalarchersoregon.com and sign up. Super cheap membership, and uh, that helps our numbers. So heck yeah. And for the listeners, um, we want to hear from you guys. Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. And send us an email and let us know what's going on in your state, um, who we need to put on from your state for our Making Bow Hunting Better segment. Um, so definitely reach out to us because we want to hear what's going on locally for all you guys. And as a kind of a final comment, I guess I would say in addition to TAO, which is obviously a state organization, like Bob said, anybody's welcome to join, but Professional Bow Hunter Society is, I feel, the national equivalent in terms of being active politically. And uh, if you're looking at a uh, broader, more national connection, I'd, I'd really recommend PBS. Yeah, heck yeah. Join, those, join all those organizations. Yeah. PBS, Compton's, uh, your local state organizations, get involved for sure. <laughs>